it will sort of so, make you a higher level programmer. You know, it's like being able to lift yourself above your program. It's like, otherwise you're just like a little ant working in an ant hill, right? Hello, this is Adam Gordon-Bell. Join me as I learn about building software. This is Code Recursive. That was Bartosz Malewski. He is the author of a famous blog series and also lecture series and now book on category theory for programmers. The world of functional programming is rife with terminology imported from category theory. In fact, maybe one of the more valid criticisms of FP is that the use of this category theoretic terminology can be confusing and maybe off-putting for newcomers. Category theory itself, though, can be a tool to teach us to see software development in a different light, and it can teach us to build better software. Bartosz is also just an interesting person to talk to, so if you haven't heard of him yet, I think you're in for a treat. Bartosz, thanks for joining me on the podcast. People who listen to this, they might hear different terms that come up over the course of episodes like functors and algebraic data types implicatives, some types, product types. Like, where do these terms come from? Oh, they come from category theory. And like, what is category theory? Yeah, category <laughs> theory, it's a branch of mathematics. It's like a very, very abstract branch of mathematics. And uh, really surprisingly, this extremely abstract branch of mathematics has applications in programming which is really a big surprise. For, I, I talked to some mathematicians and they were also surprised that it's like, when you're a mathematician and uh, you want to study category theory, usually you first go through all other branches of mathematics. You have to be like fluent in topology and algebra and analysis, you know, so all these things because group theory, because they use examples when they teach category theory. They use examples that are familiar to mathematicians. So they use examples from every branch of mathematics because mm. it's, it's like a theory that abstracts over all other branches of mathematics. So what does it have to do with programming? Well, because programming really is mathematics, you know, whether we know this or accept this or not, it really is. And it's all about structure. And mathematics is all about structure. I mean, mathematics is just building structures from essentially from nothing. You know, you, you put some axioms and then you derive stuff from it and so on. But it all has tremendous structure, right? Everything is structured. There's like this follows from that. You know, this, you divide things, you categorize things, you say, you know, well, we have things like groups, we have things like monoids, we have things like um, measures, topology, open sets, and so on. So that you categorize things, you, you say like, you know, you have all, all kinds of sets, but there are some special sets like open sets and so on. And how do you characterize these things? Well, you characterize them by saying what properties they have. So how they interact with other things that you already know or other things of the same type. And this is very much like what we do in programming. We define things and then we describe them by how they interact with other things, like in object-oriented programming. Okay, I mean, mostly category theory is used in um, functional programming, but object-oriented mm -hmm. programming also has very rigid structure, right? So you do things like data hiding, for instance. What does it mean to hide your data? It means that you want to describe your object not by how it's implemented, but how it interacts with other objects, namely its methods, right? What are messages? Like what kind of messages can you send to this object and 
how it will respond to these messages by sending other messages and so on. So this view of things, you know, that you have objects that interact with each other by sending messages, for instance, that's like the essence of category theory. A category is just a bunch of objects and arrows between them. That's all. And this is like, this is perfect model for programming. So there's an abstract branch of math that deals with objects and arrows. And then somebody realized this looks a lot like what we're doing with software development. Is that kind of the view of it? Historically speaking? No. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. No, what about but, this? But, like, I mean, you know, I mean, people were always like uh, computer scientists were always interested in like, what is programming really? Right. So there are like these two schools of thought, the Turing school of thought that says, well, a computer is just a device that has like a sort of like a printing head and reader and so on. And it just moves the tape and infinite tape and moves it. And so this is a very mechanical kind of approach. And then there's this very abstract um, approach in mathematics like what is computation because normally in math you define things like functions and you say well function is just uh, a value that is related to the argument of the function so there's argument and there's value you know it's like function is defined and this is argument this is value give me an argument i'll give you a value it doesn't ask you you know it's like well, but how long will it take you <laughs> to calculate <laughs> this value, right? No, it's just there, right? But in computer science, you have to think about, well, if I want a value, I'll have to like derive it from the argument somehow. And I have mm -hmm. to go through some steps, right? And so I have to decompose this bigger question into smaller question. And just answer every single smaller question and then combine them into one big uh, result, right? So being able to decompose bigger problems into smaller problems and then combine the solutions, that's essentially the description of, well, I don't know, depends on who you are. You will say, oh, that's a description of what I'm doing as a programmer. And mm -hmm. a mathematician will say, oh, this is a description of what I'm doing as a mathematician. And, and you know... A physicist will say, that's what I'm doing as a physicist, and so on. It's like everybody's doing this. This is like the essence of all human activity. That's interesting. It makes sense to me that that's what I do as a programmer. Like, if I'm given some requirements, then, you know, I feel how they might break into like modules and then build those modules and then combine them back. Mm -hmm. I would have never thought that that's what a mathematician does, but maybe I don't understand what mathematicians do. <laughs> well, when you're a mathematician, you also like divide your work into, okay, I have to prove this theorem first. And in order to prove this theorem, I have to prove this lemma. I have to define like a new maybe space or object in my space and so on. So it's like, yeah, you are. And then if you have like a huge, huge problem, you want to split it into smaller problems. Like if you want to prove Fermat's last theorem, right? It's not mm -hmm. just like you think for a moment and then you say, oh, I got it, right? No. <laughs> 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 you say, you know, I have to study first like elliptic curves, maybe. And uh, there is this theorem in elliptic curves that I have to prove. Oh, and somebody tried to prove it, but they failed because they couldn't prove a certain lemma. Maybe I can do this and so on. So you always split things into smaller pieces, right? And then uh, sometimes when you work in a team, right, you have to split your work into individual tasks and so on. So like everything we humans do is, is, is always composable. So what does category theory bring to the table? Yeah, category theory essentially studies all the different ways in which things can be composed and decomposed. That's like the goal of category theory. You know, it's like, it says like, what is the structure of things? So what is a structure? Structure is like what parts something has and how these parts interact 
right? I mean, we don't even ask ourselves these questions like, what is a structure, right? <laughs> but, but it's an obvious thing, right? But it is, structure is that you can decompose something into smaller pieces and you can describe how they interact. That's structure, right? Otherwise, you have like one huge morass of stuff. <laughs> and why does category theory seem to, or why is it more used in the world of functional programming? Why not imperative programming or object-oriented programming? It's mostly because functional programming is um, much more restricted, less hacky, I would say. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I came from imperative programming. I, I mean, I programmed in C++ for, for years. So, you know, I'm familiar with this stuff and I, I can do that, right? But things in um, imperative programming are not very well defined. It's like they don't really have this nice mathematical structure. It's more of a, an expert system programming. Like there are rules, you know, you're not supposed to do that. It's mostly like you're not supposed to do things, right? <laughs> I get a lot of teaching of, of uh, imperative programming is don't do that, don't do that. And, you know, they slap you over the head, you know, and say, like, don't dereference this pointer, okay? You're not supposed to do that, right? In, in functional programming, it's more like there is a mathematical structure behind it and let's just stick to it, right? And if you have this mathematical structure, then you don't have to slap people over the head and say, don't do that because it's impossible to do certain things, right? You mentioned before, like Turing machines versus Lambda calculus, I think. So like, yeah. I mean, computers really are imperative, aren't they? In their like execution. So why do we need something that models things abstractly when they execute concretely step after step? Well, because there is uh, this other thing on the on the other side of the computer, and that's the human, right? The mm. human programmer, okay? So programming is not just about the computer. It's about the interaction between a human and a computer. And I mean, the computer doesn't really care about, you know, how structured your code is. Why do we avoid go-tos, you know? It's like computers love go-tos. Give me go-tos. Yeah, I can execute them. It's like, uh, right? I mean, it's like the processor has uh, one of the basic uh, instructions, jump, right? Yeah. <laughs> why don't we jump all the time, right? So why do we avoid go-tos? Not because computers don't like go-tos, right? It's because we humans, if we have too many go-tos, we just lose track of stuff and uh, start making mistakes. Right. So I don't think this is like the requirement, you know, for uh, the computer architecture or the programming language should reflect the architecture of the computer. I think the computer language should reflect the architecture of the human mind and the human mind works differently. Right. I mean, we have to do this thing with what we call understand things, right? So mm -hmm. a computer doesn't understand things, but we have to, right? We have to understand things. And understanding, again, it means that we have to like divide problems into smaller things, give them names, right? We give them names. Like computer doesn't care what names you give, like X1, X2, X3. They're just fine, right? <laughs> mm -hmm. Why do we come up with these names for variables that, you know, it's like factory of uh, lists or something like that, right? I read some story about how the, like a library differs from like an Amazon warehouse, right? So in a library, you have like a Dewey Decimal System where people can locate where books are. Yeah. Uh, in the Amazon warehouse, Amazon has a very simple way of organizing things. They just put things wherever and just remember where they put them because it's a computer. <laughs> you don't mm -hmm, need it. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. So it seems like what you're saying is category theory is for people, not for computers. Is that yes, the idea? Absolutely. Yeah. So in category theory, there's like arrows and objects. What is that? What are arrows and objects? Well, that's the wrong kind of question. Right? <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> you're not supposed to look inside objects or arrows. They are just like the, the basic uh, thing. And I mean, they have certain properties, right? So you mm -hmm. describe them not by what they are, but how they behave. So objects are really, you can think of objects as being labels for beginnings and ends of arrows. That's all. Because you have to say arrow goes from A to B, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so this is why you need A and B. So an arrow can go there. Yeah. So the arrow can, can connect that. Right. So you have objects uh, as, as these uh, endpoints for arrows and you have arrows that can be composed. And this is like, this is what it, it's all about, about composition. So if you mm -hmm. have an arrow from A to B and an arrow from B to C, then there is automatically an arrow from A to C, which is a composition of these arrows. And that's like the principle of category theory that things are composable. That's it, we're done. And well, there is one more thing, you know, there's, there has to be an identity arrow for every object, which means, you know, it's, a, it's an arrow that when you compose with some other arrow, you get back that, that arrow again. So it's like multiplying by one or adding zero, right? That's an identity arrow. So that's all the requirements, you know. You have to be able to compose arrows. There has to be a unit arrow for every object. The, the identity arrow and also the composition has to be associative so that you don't have to parentheses like did i first compose these two and then compose it with a third one or did i do it in that different right so what is an example of a category where that has some meaning well so the category that we are using as, as programmers that's the category that underlies programming languages objects in that category are called types and arrows are called functions, pure functions. This is why it's so nice to talk about functional languages because in functional languages, you have these pure functions, right? Mm -hmm. So you automatically are in category theory. And in fact, this is like maybe the best way of defining what you're doing as abstractly as a programmer that because like if you ask somebody what is a type what is a function you know it's it's really well people think of types as, as sets of values okay mm -hmm. so that's one possible approach but sets form a category so it's like to, to the lowest approximation you can say well it's a category of sets and functions so i can think about like my method like two string or show it just mm -hmm. takes say the, the set of things that's the set of integers and maps it to a set of strings. Is that kind of the, yes. the and it is the arrow that does that map. Yeah, exactly. And you so can compose them, right? I mean, you can first uh, uh, say to a string and then you can say uppercase, right? And you have a composition of these two things. You can say uppercase to string or something like that. And, that's a new function. That's a composition of these two. And of course, there is an identity function that, well, we don't even think much about, but it's a function that returns its argument without changing it. Yeah. So the identity on my integer example just returns the same integer. Yeah. Yeah. And so is the value there that category theory gives us sort of a language to look at things from the outside, like to just look at the types and the mappings? Well, this is just uh, sort of like the beginning because the category has, has more structure. You can add additional structure to a category or you can discover additional structure in this category. So, for instance, in programming, we are dealing with data structures, right? Mm -hmm. So, what are data structures? Again, you know, you have to start with some elementary types, right? And then from these types, you form more complex types. Like how do you define, you know, a, a structure, struct, right? I mean, you say, well, I'll put an int there and I will put a string there and maybe a Boolean, right? So mm -hmm. you are combining things together, right? So, you know, you take several types, which are objects in your category, and you put them into one bigger type that combines them. And that's called a product in a category theory. 
Or you do things like creating a data structure in which I either have a string or an integer, like a you know union type or something. That's also can be described in, in a category theory as, as a sum type and so on. So you get product types, you get sum types, and you can do algebra on them. And you know, you get algebraic data types. Yeah, one critique that I sometimes hear about functional programming is that the terminology can be confusing, right? That it can be not friendly to newcomers that we call it algebraic data types and some types and product types. And mm -hmm. Do you think that's like a valid criticism? <laughs> no. No. So. <laughs> no. I mean, a name is a name, you know, it's like, uh, why should we invent? I mean, there are some cultures in, in uh, programming that invent languages and libraries where they come up with weird names that are supposed to be easier to understand than, than the ones taken from mathematics. But then, you know, it's sort of like blocks you from going back to mathematics and trying to learn what's the theory behind that, right? So you, you go to a mathematical paper and they use completely different language and you don't know, well, what is that? I don't know what a sum is, what, a, what are a product is, right? So I don't know, why use a different language there and here? And anyways, like if I call something, you know, like in object-oriented programming, if I call something an object, right? That's so meaningful, right? Just try to define what you mean by an object in a programming language. Just because you took a, a word from English language that everybody thinks to, they understand, that doesn't mean that an object in C++, for instance, is like immediately obvious. Oh, that's an object. Oh, I know what an object is because I learned it when I was a, an infant, right? <laughs> no. Yeah. And then when you have objects that are like nouns or, you know, like the factory builder you were talking about, like how? Yeah. How is that an object? Yeah, exactly. People uh, try to give them names like mappable, I think. Right? Mm. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So functor is mappable and uh, monad is what bindable. Like, is that really easier to understand? Mappable is not bad. I don't think bindable is good. Uh, <laughs> Monoid could be like combinable, maybe. Combinable, know. yeah. There we go. See, we're, we've already improved things. <laughs> <laughs> so you mentioned, you mentioned um, C++. So how did you get here from doing C++ development to, you know, writing about category theory? Well, I was always interested in uh, how do you write good programs, right? How, how mm -hmm. do you make your programs uh, reliable? And um, that, that made me interested in the theory behind uh, programming. And I was always interested in exploring the, the boundaries, like what is the hardest thing in C++ that you can think of? Well, I guess um, template Templates. metaprogramming, <laughs> <huh>? <laughs> right? Yeah. Template metaprogramming. So I got into template metaprogramming and it was fascinating because it was so different from regular programming because it's done at compile time. So there is no mutation, right? So mm -hmm. how do you program without mutation? Okay. So I started reading these books about template metaprogramming in C++ and it was really hard to understand. And then I found out, okay, so they actually take all these ideas from functional programming, you know, some of these people are actually no Haskell and they just translate mm -hmm. it into C++ and say, hey, I came up with this great thing. So I discovered this and um, I started my own franchise, you know, it's like, oh, okay, started blogging about, oh, this is how you can do using template metaprogramming, this fancy thing here and fancy thing there, you know, it's like, oh, okay, cool. <laughs> and people were amazed that you can do these things in C++, right? But it was really mm -hmm. cheating, you know, it's like, <laughs> I was taking something from Haskell that in Haskell is just like a one-liner, you know, <laughs> and, um, and translating it. So eventually I, I decided to cut the middleman and just go directly to Haskell and see how it works in Haskell. 
And so it's, it's yeah, a cheat and, code. And, yeah. It's a way. So understanding functional programming was like a, a shortcut for you to be able to understand template metaprogram. Yes. Like yeah. Being able to think in Haskell, but write in C++ was your advantage. Yeah. And then I even started talking to C++ programmers saying that even if you program in C++, it's a good idea to learn some Haskell and maybe use it as pseudocode. You know, I'm like a lot of people from C++, they don't like functional programming because of performance, because it's mm -hmm. true. I mean, performance in, it depends on, on what kind of programming you're doing, but if you're doing like, you know, maybe string processing, maybe Haskell would not be the fastest uh, language to do this. And if you start dealing with performance issues, then your Haskell code, I mean, you can optimize stuff, but then your Haskell code is, uh, becomes uglier, mm -hmm. not so clean. Like clean code that doesn't really perform very well. So that's, <laughs> <laughs> that's the problem. But, you know, it's like if, if you solve your problem first in Haskell and then uh, you translate it into C++, you will probably get better quality code mm. at the end and better performing. And so how did you get from Haskell to category theory? Well, <laughs> because of the, the language, you know, because the, they use these terms, the functor, monad, monoid, and so on. And so I was curious, where do these terms come from and what's the meaning of that. So I started looking into a mathematical foundation of that, trying to understand. And then again, you know, it's like, I, I, now I don't do much programming, mostly just testing some ideas, mostly testing the types. Do they work together and so on? Because even Haskell is too constraining. So there are certain ideas in math that are difficult to translate to Haskell. So it's again, like, you know, finding the boundaries of what can be expressed in Haskell and then going beyond them as category theory. There is a whole area in between, which is um, dependent types. So dependent types are very interesting. And um, I'm trying to learn Idris, which is a dependent type language and figure things out. Nice. Yeah. I've had a couple episodes about dependent types. Edwin Brady was on the podcast. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. So I think what you're saying is you went from writing C++, but thinking about it in Haskell to writing Haskell, but thinking about it in category theory. <laughs> yes. So is there like a, a notation or something for category theory? What do your thoughts look like? Is it in a mathematical notation? Or? A lot of my thoughts, when I uh, do them on paper, on the whiteboard, they are diagrams. Yeah. It's like, you know, arrows between dots. That's a, yeah, that's how you work in category theory. So it's purely visual now. Your thinking is actually all diagram based. Yeah. And, and it's very good for me because this is, you know, it's like different people have different types of uh, thinking. That, that they are, mm -hmm. uh, some people are better at kind of algebraic uh, thinking where they think in terms of symbols and formulas. I don't do that. I have a problem with that, but I am very visual and I like pictures. I draw lots of pictures and that helps me. Yeah, that's interesting. I don't know. Am I a visual thinker? I think I'm somewhat of like a oral, like I think I think in like a soundtrack, you know what I mean? Like uh -huh. <laughs> yeah. So what is, what's the most successful, what's been a success that's come out of applying category theory to software? I think the whole language Haskell is very solid because it's based on mathematical foundations and category theory in particular. So I, I think, well, okay, monads, probably monads are like the most successful thing in functional programming because when people started um, working in Haskell, it was a purely functional language. It is still a purely functional language, but with a purely functional language, you have this problem 
of, well, so how do I print something? <laughs> it's a side effect, okay? How do I get input from a file or from the user, right? That's not a function, you know? It's like get character, get string, you know? It's, it's not a function because every time you call it, it returns a different value, possibly, right? Yeah. So how do you describe this in terms of category? And so instead of like doing the easy way out, like most uh, other languages, including, you know, functional languages, like Haskell is probably the only, well, um, there are some others, but the strict functional pure language, right? It's like even, mm-hmm. even ML is cheating. So they started thinking, you know, how can we do this without cheating, right? So that's, yeah. that's a really hard problem. And because scientists like hard problems, you know, it's like, unlike engineers who will try to find shortcuts and do it quickly because there is like um, a know, deadline, deadline <laughs> pending, right? <laughs> <laughs> and their salary depends on it. And scientists like is interested in like, will there be a publication out of it, right? Mm-hmm. So if it's a hard problem, then the publication will be good, right? <laughs> nice. so, so they figured out this stuff and they, they found out that the way to do this is to use monads. And then once monads came into functional programming, they are now uh, spreading to other languages. Yeah, definitely. I had Phil Wadler as a guest on the podcast who I think he did the implementation of bringing monads to Haskell. Yes, um, yes, he did. It, it's like the, it was Eugenio, Eugenio Moji who first introduced monads into computer science, but it was very theoretical. And, and then Phil Wadler uh, read his paper, talked to him, and came up with something that was actually very practical and, and worked. Yeah. And um, an interesting thing about Phil was that he was saying that he thinks these mathematical concepts, like lambda calculus specifically, that these are like kind of innate to the universe. Maybe he wouldn't quite say it that way, but he thinks yeah, that they he are. Would, he would, yes. Yeah. <laughs> I had discussions with him about this. You know, I totally disagree. He's a Platonist. Yeah. So a lot of mathematicians uh, are Platonists. They, they believe that uh, there are just things inherent, like mathematics is built into the universe. I totally disagree. So what's your perspective on it? Why do you disagree? I think mathematics is uh, something that is uh, inherent to human beings. You know, that's this is the way, the only way we can deal with our environment is because we have small brains, you know, it's like compared to the size of the universe, this is just like a tiny, tiny thing. And it evolved mm-hmm. from uh, apes that, we're trying to solve problems like how to run away from a predator or how to kill an animal to and eat it, you know, and start a fire and so on. So the way we deal with complexity is by dividing into smaller tasks, uh, solving them, and then recombining the solutions. And that's what we do with everything. We just don't know how to deal with things that are not decomposable. I mean, one part of life is that, you know, every living being has to have some kind of model of the environment. Mm -hmm. So it has to create a simplified model of the environment. I mean, we humans have this sort of, we, uh, we can even think about the model as opposed to reality, right? We have a model of, of the environment in our brains and we know it's simplified, right? But the fact that you can take the environment, the universe, and simplify it, I mean, throwing away some things and decomposing into smaller things, that's just an amazing thing. And, and people think, well, isn't that amazing that the universe is decomposable? And I think, no, it's not amazing that the universe, I mean, it is amazing that this part of the universe that we live in, the particular scales, like the, mm-hmm. the meter scale, 
is decomposable, oh, okay. right? But like you can go like a, a 10 levels down to like micro scales and suddenly things are completely different, right? You know, this is why we don't have life at the Planck scale because it's not decomposable, you know? At our level of universe, things are nicely decomposable and this is what makes life possible. And that's humans. Yeah, I would think that it's like has to do with where we evolved, right? Like we have mm-hmm. trouble understanding things at the quantum level because it's just foreign to us, right? The same way we have a hard time understanding how approaching the speed of light works. It's just because humans never existed in a world where they went that fast. So it doesn't fit in the model mm-hmm. of our brain. But humans never existed at atomic scales because it's impossible for life to exist at atomic scales. Why is it impossible? Why is it like, why can't there be a life on the surface of the nucleus of hydrogen, right? Why? Well, what would it be made out of? <laughs> I don't know. Exactly, right? Right? <laughs> oh, I see. Yeah. <laughs> You're saying yeah. made of means decomposable, yeah. right? Ah, uh, yeah, uh, yeah. There's nothing to compose or decompose. I see. Yeah, that makes sense. You had some talk that you sent the link to me where you uh, posit that the world is uh, not round or that the world is flat, I think. was it? <laughs> uh, Well, it was tanning cheek. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Could you explain that point? Like, how is the world flat? Because people often confuse, well, Platonists will confuse the thing that we understand about the world with what the world is really, right? The ontology of the world. Because the world isn't really a sphere, I guess, right? It has yeah, yeah. The earth is not a sphere. It's like if you start arguing that the world is a sphere, you're talking about some kind of ideal of a world, right? A model, right? So you can model the earth to some approximation as a sphere. And that's good, mm. you know, it's like, but the earth is not a sphere. You have to understand the earth is not a sphere. There is a yeah. tiny difference, you know, it's like, <laughs> um, several kilometers, you know, in some places, right? It, so it's... It has to do with your decomposition thought, I think, right? Because you're saying like, for me to understand what the world looks like, I need to come up with some model and it has to fit inside my yeah, head, right? Exactly. So, it has to be, it has to get rid of some of the details. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, this is what we call abstraction. Abstraction is the getting rid of, of some details and, and getting a, a nice model out of it. So, yeah. So, I mean, you can describe the earth as a sphere to some approximation mm-hmm. and you can describe the earth as flat, mathematically mm-hmm. it's okay you know it's like there is a system of coordinates in which the earth is flat you know and it would be much much harder to work with that system of coordinates because you would constantly have to do adjustments you know it's like you, you move towards the south pole for instance what we consider south pole you know and like your coordinates would just blow to infinity so this abstraction I think it, so at the level of my code, right? Like I just have imperative code that runs on the computer. Like it does jumps and whatever. Mm -hmm. And then like I have my actual, like maybe I have my functional programming code. It's like a level up, right? It hides some details. And then I'm trying to connect this all back. So then Mm -hmm. I think what you're saying is there's like category theory is like something that gets rid of some of these details even more. So it's like, if you want to look at the flat, if you... You can assume the world is flat when you're measuring a 100-meter race. Like, that's fine, yeah. right? But then when you want to zoom out and go to the South Pole, you maybe you want to assume it's a sphere. And then, like, at each level of detail, if you want to do a foundation for your house, like, at the lowest level, you can't assume the world is flat. You have to actually know where the bumps and, and cracks are. Yeah. So, a category theory is a way to hide some of the details so that we can fit it in our head. So, it's not something... I'm trying to understand your perspective. It's like, it's not something innate to the mathematical underpinnings of the world. It's a way that humans use to fit big, hairy concepts into their heads. Yeah, exactly. So, category theory is a very good description of how our minds work. It has nothing to do... Well, maybe that's, that's, that's a harsh statement, but... 
you should not confuse mathematical model with reality. And mm -hmm. I hear this very often when, when, you know, especially talking to mathematicians, they say, you know, it's like, okay, so we have, a, in this category, we have like this category describes the world and inside this category, we have a model of the world, right? But the world is also a category. It's like, no, the world is not a category. The world is already, a, I mean, a category is already a model in our brain, mm. right? Yeah. So there is this, this problem occurs in, in mathematics and, and in physics, you know, it's like in physics, you have quantum physics, you know, and then you have, you have an external observer always, you know, it's like, mm -hmm. it's, it's you, I never sat right with me. Yeah. And, and, <laughs> you know, I mean, as a physicist, you kind of get used to it, but never really, you know, it's like, you know that there's something wrong with quantum mechanics at some level. <laughs> there's always this classical observer that's observing quantum effects. So it means that the quantum theory is incomplete. And every single theory that we have is incomplete. And, because they're and, just and models. And even true in mathematics, you know, there's an incompleteness theorem. Like Gödel's incompleteness. So it's like everything we do is incomplete. So why should people learn category theory? Why should people do anything? <laughs> Is it fun? Is it practical? So, so Is it both? for a programmer, for instance, like it doesn't yeah. make sense to learn category theory. Will it make you a better programmer? I think it will. Mm -hmm. It will sort of so, make you a higher level programmer. You know, it's like being able to lift yourself above your program. It's like, otherwise you, you know, you're just like a little ant working in an ant hill, right? And the only things you see are the things that are close around you, right? Mm -hmm. It's like, you'll never able to like lift yourself above the ant hill and see how it's related to the rest of the world and so on. And category theory provides these uh, ways, these abstractions that otherwise you wouldn't even think of, you know, it connects things. It says, well, a list is in a way, a list data structure is somehow similar to an optional in some ways. How is it similar? Well, because it's a monad, right? Mm -hmm. And unless you have this um, word monad, you know, and the description of what a monad is, you will never see the similarity between a list and optional or a, well, a function. Type. You could just say it's a, a list of uh, maximum one arguments, like a list of max size one. Okay. Yeah. You, know, you could. Uh -huh. <laughs> but maybe that would get you towards the concept of a monad. I don't know. But yeah. 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 It probably would. Yeah. If it became widely understood as a language where we talk about software development using these terminology, like how would that influence software development? It would make us feel smarter because we'd have all these abstract algebra terms to throw around. I think it's already changing the way we program. I mean, the development of, of programming and programming languages is sort of from, uh, goes from bottom up. It's like we start working to solve particular problems, right? And then, mm -hmm. then we discover that there are similarities between these problems and that we could simplify our lives instead of redeveloping the same thing over and over and over. Maybe we can abstract over it, right? And a lot mm -hmm. of programming languages evolve, but every programming language really evolves this way that it just adds abstractions on top. And um, yeah. I saw this in C++, you know, I, I was always really happy when new features came to C++ because like, oh, I can do more stuff, right? But they were always like slapped on top of the existing stuff, <laughs> you know, and it was, there was like a, this really ugly syntax of... Um, templates, right? You know, it's like mm -hmm. there were even problems like if you have a template inside a template, then the two greater than signs would collide and the compiler would think this is like, oh, this is a right shift. You know, it's like, that's crazy, right? 
it just says, you know, this language was not developed to think at this, this high level of abstraction, right? And it was just added to it. So there are new languages which let you program more abstractly, which means that you can reuse your code, that you can write code that will solve different kinds of problems using the same methods. I mean, you know, there is, there's like this whole industry of um, patterns, right? There is the, the yeah. Gang of Four pattern book and so on. That was a great thing when, when it came out. But it showed this tremendous weakness of programming languages that you have to describe these patterns in a book Right. And, yeah. and then ask the programmer, oh, here you have a particular problem, you know, write your code according to this book instead of yes. use this library. Right. Because we've solved this problem before. Right. So the gang of four solved a certain bunch of problems. Right. But they could not express mm -hmm. it in a language. What was a stumbling block that you hit or that people hit when trying to learn about category theory? Oh, the biggest stumbling block is that mathematicians, they, they just don't explain things the way that's easy to understand. That, let me describe <laughs> it this way. I don't know. <laughs> it's like when you, when you read a, a, a mathematical paper or, or a book, you know, it's, it's written in a certain style, you know? Is it that it's written that for mathematicians to understand, but not for programmers, or is it? it I think I think it's it's a culture. It's a culture thing, you know. It's like there is even. I mean, being a physicist, you know, I see the difference in culture between physics and mathematics. Like in physics, uh, you know, we had this great guy Feynman who was like. Mm -hmm. He would always try to explain things in the simplest terms. And he loved uh, giving talks to outsiders, trying to explain, you know, the quantum field theory, you know, stuff mm -hmm. like this. And mathematicians don't do that. They write these abstract papers. And if you don't get it, you know, it's sort of like, you're stupid because you don't get it. You know, you shouldn't be reading this. <laughs> Whereas Feynman had the opposite. Like, if I can't explain it, it means I don't understand it. You know, if I can't explain it in simple terms, I don't understand. So. And is this why you started your series explaining category theory for programmers? Yes. Yes. This and because I thought there is this problem that mathematicians will use examples from other branches of mathematics. And so what if you don't know these other branches of mathematics? Does it mean that category theory is useless to you? No, it's not. It's just that, um, you know, you have to like rewrite category theory using different examples. And there are mm -hmm. plenty of examples in programming that I could use to explain concepts in category theory. And, and it turns out that these concepts are not that hard if you have the right examples. Yeah, that totally makes sense. It's interesting, like, I guess one thing I never thought of before I started talking to you was, so there's this field called category theory. My understanding is that somebody noticed a whole bunch of similarities between a whole bunch of branches of math, right? And that's where it came from. But what you're saying is, I think that those similarities aren't to do with math they're to do with the people who created the math yeah yes exactly and you see these things not only in, in mathematics but also in physics in in programming it's like in every area of human activity you see the same patterns the same structures it's like i sometimes am amazed you know it's like reading a, a paper in some area of mathematics and they are using the same ideas that I found in some other area of mathematics. And I'm like thinking about, are these the only patterns that we humans are able to discern? And we are just describing the same patterns over and over and over again in different contexts. Does that mean that there's things we'll never figure out because they're not part of our, the patterns we can find? 
we have figured some things out and there are so many other things that we haven't figured out. And we always think uh, that like, we already understand like 99% of stuff and there's this 1% missing. And I think this is completely wrong. We Uh understand like 0.001% if it even makes sense, right? And there is so much stuff missing. We just ignore the stuff that we don't understand. Do you know what we're ignoring? Well, yeah, there are certain things that we know that are sort of beyond the scope of what we can do right now. And we think, well, eventually we'll figure these things out. But in physics, obviously, there is this humongous problem of we have general relativity and gravity on the one side and quantum mechanics Mm -hmm. on the other side. And we just don't know how to connect them. And we think, well, well, maybe string theory, maybe this, maybe that, you know, it's like, and the deeper we go into it, the the more we understand that we don't understand stuff. And maybe these things just don't decompose, you know, it's like, that's (laughs) the obvious solution. Okay. And if they don't decompose, then we can't really describe them. We can't have a model, right? It's like, does everything have to have a model? Can it be simplified? Why should it be? You can always come up with approximates for things, can't you? Why? Like how the globe is... I don't know. Why? Because because this is what's been happening in, in the history of humankind. But you can also understand this as like, we are discovering things that are possible for us to understand. And we just mm. ignore everything else. Yeah. I don't know a lot about physics, but... And this will probably get cut from the actual episode, but <laughs> like uh, dark matter, that doesn't seem to make sense. Like they're like, okay, the universe has to have so much mass to it and there's not enough. So let's just postulate something that weighs the rest of it. That seems like cheating, right? It, <laughs> like, yeah. I mean, and a lot of people think it, it is cheating. Yeah. Crazy stuff. Yeah. There's dark matter. There's dark energy. Yeah. Maybe that's the difference between physicists and mathematicians. I don't know. Well, physicists are very pragmatic. You know, if it it works, it works. Okay. If I can calculate something and and then test it, then it's great. In this way, physicists are more like uh, programmers. Hmm. If it works, let's ship it. (laughs) (laughs) So what's next for you after category theory? I'm interested in homotopy type theory, but this is really hard has to do with equality. I know that much. So thank you so much for joining me. It it was a lot of fun. Thank you. Thank you for having me. That was the show. It was so much fun for me to talk to Bartosz and I hope it gives some context for why category theory is something interesting and something worth looking into. On the Slack channel, user Freemason has been sharing the results of building JavaScript tokenizers and parsers. And he was inspired by the episode we did about building your own interpreter. Also, Mark Weiss and Brandon Brown have been talking about programmatic music creation, which sounds pretty cool. If you like the podcast, make sure you subscribe and also follow the podcast and myself on Twitter. That's at Adam Gordon Bell and at CoRecursive. I've been on a couple of different podcasts lately talking about functional programming and containers and distributed teams and a couple other topics. You can find a list of some of those episodes on my website, which is adamgordonbell.com. Until next time, thank you for listening. Thank you.